0: Well, this morning, as we continue our journey to hope and begin our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, um, I want to open it by backing way up, uh, maybe to your childhood, and telling some classic Bible stories. Uh, For some of you, this will take you back to your childhood Sunday school classes. For others, you may never have heard or studied these stories at all. Whatever the case, whenever we study something, especially from the Word, Uh, We need to understand the context of what we're studying, and that's what I want to do this morning. I want to set up the context in which the book of Ecclesiastes was written, and we're not actually even going to get to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning. I want to help you understand who the author was and what God was doing in his life at the time. Um, We'll all get more out of Ecclesiastes, this difficult book, uh, if we understand these things. So our story begins with a very familiar character. His name is David. Yes, the giant slayer David. David, the shepherd boy who became king. Most of you know his story. Well, our story begins today with David and more specifically with one of the lowest points in David's life. David was described by God as a man after God's heart. God loved David very much, but David was not perfect. And we know that by having heard or read a story of how David messed up, royally messed up. Back in the book of Second Samuel, in the first half of that book, David is the king of Israel and he's become a very powerful king. He's sending out armies and taking control of Israel's enemies one by one. And no matter how often his enemies join forces, David's armies defeat them again and again. Entire nations are surrendering and coming under the rule of King David and the nation of Israel. It's a pretty prosperous time for Israel. Their power is expanding and David's reputation is growing rapidly. On top of all that is the fact that his relationship with God is solid and his prayers are being answered. Well, in the second half of the book of 2 Samuel, things take a a nasty turn for David And it starts with something that we have a hard time grasping if we really stop and think about it. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read about this strange set of circumstances. And now, I'll just tell you the story at this point. Um, When we come to the next chapter in our story here, I'll have you turn to the text and follow along. But for now, just listen as I set the stage. This is what we read. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Well, first of all, it appears that conquering the world has a season. It was like football or like, well, not like hockey. Um, Their season depends on when the arguing stops. But battle season started in the spring or at least the main events, the battles that involved the kings. So in this particular spring, nations were once again going to war, and their kings were leading the fight, except David. And this had not been a pattern in previous battles. Uh, David had led his forces into enemy territory, and he had quite a reputation as a soldier, but not this time. And this is to us an indication that something is wrong As a leader, David was not in the right place. His heart was obviously not in the right place. But even geographically, David was not where he was supposed to be. The bravest and the best that Israel had to offer were out risking their lives for David's kingdom. David, however, was behind, resting alone at home. In fact, the text says that he was on the couch, literally, but he gets up late one afternoon, he takes a walk on the roof of his home, and you know what happens next. He spots a woman bathing, he asks someone to find out who she is, then he sends someone to get her and bring her to him. He has sex with her, she goes home, soon finds out that she's pregnant, and sends someone to tell David that this is what's happened. Meanwhile, her husband, Uriah, is away fighting the battle that David is supposed to be leading. David calls him back from the battle and sets up a way for Uriah to report to him and then go home to his wife thinking that he'll sleep with his wife and that David is then less likely to be found out. Well, that doesn't work. Uriah is too loyal and he won't be distracted while he's back. He wants to be ready to get right back into the battle and so he sleeps that night in David's doorway. This guy is very loyal. David makes him stay another day, and he gets Uriah drunk that evening, but again, Uriah does not go home at night. So the next morning, David writes a note to Uriah's commander instructing him on how Uriah is to die, and then he gives that note to Uriah to deliver to his commander himself. Really nice. The Plans carried out, Uriah is put on the front line of the battle, the rest of the Israelites draw back, and Uriah is killed right away. And David sends a message to his commander on the front lines to tell him not to lose any sleep over what just happened. So Bathsheba mourns the loss of her husband, but is then united with David and bears him a son. But God was obviously not pleased with David. So God sends David a prophet named Nathan to point out to him the difference between his judgments and his actions. And God promises through Nathan that the sword will never leave David's household. And Sure enough, three of David's sons would die by the sword. Well, this is a dark, dark time for David. He took Bathsheba to be his wife and she bore him a son, but that son soon dies. It was a dark time for Bathsheba as well, but David got her pregnant again and she gave birth to another son. And this son's name was Solomon. Fast forward history a little bit here. Solomon's growing up. David's getting old. Now let's go to the Word and track our story together. Turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings. The 11th book of the Bible. It comes after 1 and 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel is where the story of David that we just looked at is found. Uh, look for page 279 in the blue Bibles that were just handed out. The first narrative heading that you'll see in your Bible is David in his old age. David in his old age. David's health was failing. He couldn't seem to physically stay warm. Now, I'm not going to describe what they did to help him get warm. All you need to know is that David was aging, and the public knew that. And so the opportunity was presenting itself to sort out who was going to replace him. Who's going to be king next? So David's sons enter the picture. Adonijah was the fourth son born to David back in a place called Hebron, a place mentioned back in 2 Samuel where we started. But he was the oldest son surviving from that mother. As I mentioned before, two of the sons had died by the sword. Another one would later. The third of the four had disappeared from the word, from the narrative here, and he's presumed dead. And so Adonijah makes his run for the throne. And his plan was to do it without being appointed king by the king. He was just going to declare himself king and rightful heir to the throne. And so he started the process of announcing to Israel that he's now king. The prophet Nathan enters the scene again and implores Bathsheba to put a stop to what's happening. David had told Bathsheba that Solomon was to become king and she needed to go remind him of that before it was too late. And so she did, and David got to work restoring the correct process in assigning the new king. Uh, he gave Solomon his own limo to use, well, he was a mule, actually, and sent him to the temple to be anointed king by the priest. Solomon is pronounced king, and Adonijah panics. He hurries to the place of asylum, and the place of asylum at that time was to enter the temple and put your hands on the horns on the altar in the temple, and that's where you'll be spared. Well, Solomon does spare him for now, and things proceed. Now David is close to death, and so he has Solomon come to him, and I want you to see and hear what David has to say to his son, the new king. Okay, let's read the first four verses of 1 Kings chapter 2. This is important to our understanding of all that happens with Solomon and where he's coming from. 1 Kings 2, the first four verses. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David's words to Solomon featured his advice to follow God Closely to walk in his ways. His vision for Solomon, his son, was that Solomon would walk before God in faithfulness. He wanted Solomon to pursue God with all that he had. Solomon's relationship with God was more important to David than anything was. We know that David had messed up. David knew that he had messed up. But when it came down to passing his wisdom along to his son, this is what David led with. Keep the ways of the Lord. Fathers, pay attention here. We all have our history. We have a legacy that we're leaving behind for our sons as fathers. So what's at the heart of that legacy for you as a dad? What's the message that you want to pass along to your children? I want you to think about this. Um, I want you to plan out what you would say to your children if you were on your deathbed and had one chance to speak to them about their future. And when you know what you'd say, make plans to start communicating that message now. Fathers, read to your children. Do that. Read to your children. Um, I can't stress this strongly enough. Make the time. Make it a priority. Read them Bible stories. Have your children read them to you when they're learning to read. There is something incredibly significant about listening to my sons read me stories from the Bible. And then we talk about those stories and and fit them into God's big story. Um, This week I had one son reading me the story of Job in his uh, graphic novel style action Bible. It was really cool. And my other son's reading me the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, and the conversations that come out of these interactions are priceless, endless opportunity to plant seeds of hope in my kids' lives. Um, Fathers, communicate eternal things to your children. Parents in general, um, come to the classes in February that I'm offering. Um, This is a chance where we can talk more about this, about how we do this and the incredible opportunity that we have all the time to have this eternal impact on our kids' lives. So in our story today, we have David leaving his son Solomon, a few brief words of counsel regarding his walk with God. Remember that. Um, this is going to show up again later in our story. What David passed on to Solomon stayed with Solomon, and it was rem- he was reminded of it more than once. Well, and David gives Solomon instructions after that on uh, which leader of which nation is going to get his butt kicked next, and then David dies Uh, His reign over Israel is finished. Solomon is now in charge. And right away, he has to establish himself as king. And that means dealing with his brother Adonijah again. Adonijah is still plotting to take over as, as king. And Solomon catches on to this. And so, what does he do? Well, naturally, he has his brother killed. And then Solomon dealt with the priest and the leader of Israel's army. They were both removed from their positions and eventually the former leader of the army was also killed. And another prominent figure who had opposed David, his father, was dispatched as well. And as gruesome and violent as this seems to us, the Bible simply states, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Well, what we're doing here is setting up a better understanding of who Solomon was and why we ought to listen to what he has to say in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, now we move on to the life of Solomon. His father's dead, his rule in the kingdom has been established, and now watch what happens to Solomon as he takes Israel forward. 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon creates an alliance with the king of Egypt, and in verse 2 it states that no place had been established yet for the name of the Lord. There was no temple. Sacrifices to God, it says, were simply made in the high places, up on mountains and stuff like that. Now, verse 3 is not to be passed over quickly. It says that Solomon loved the Lord and that he shared the love that David had for God as well. What David had spoken to Solomon on his deathbed is being fulfilled here at this point. And then something quite amazing happens to Solomon. Let's read this part together. First Kings 3. Beginning at verse 5, we'll read through verse 15. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, because he couldn't handle God just appearing to him in plain daylight. He appears to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Pause. God says, tell me what you want me to give you. Can you imagine that? And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David, my father. Why? Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. Note that. There's a theme here. And you have kept from him this great, uh, for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind. So that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Okay, what just happened here? God just promised Solomon wisdom, riches, and honor like no one has ever seen before. Solomon had asked for the right thing when given this opportunity by God. He had asked for wisdom. So can I just remind you of something here? God has never stopped offering wisdom. Wisdom has always been a request that God honors because He has always seen wisdom as something worth asking for. Listen to the words of James in James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now pay attention to the condition that's tagged on here. But... Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Wisdom is and will always be available for the faithful. Solomon was faithful and asked God for wisdom with great faith, and God gave it to him. Right away, we get to see this wisdom at work. Um, Very familiar story. It's displayed in the story of the baby that is brought before Solomon by two prostitutes. They both gave birth right around the same time, just three days apart. Well, one night, one of the babies dies. The mother of the baby that died is accused by by the other mother of switching her dead baby for the living one during the night and claiming the live baby to be her own. So they bring the case to Solomon. Solomon somehow has to figure out who the mother of the living baby really is. So Solomon calls for a sword. And he states that he'll cut the baby in half so that each of them can have half the baby. Right away, the mother of the living baby tells him to stop pleading with Solomon to just give the child to the other mother. She doesn't care, just let it live. The second mother tells him to go ahead and divide it. And Solomon discovers who the real mother is, the one who didn't want to see the baby die. Well, this story gets spread all over Israel, and the people are are just in awe of Solomon's wisdom. His reputation as a leader soars, and his people willingly follow his leadership. Israel prospers, Solomon prospers, he was a highly honored king. And in the first half of chapter 4... Solomon's government is laid out. Credible historical data recorded here. These are real people in real places. Take a look at it sometime. Then we get a peek at just how well Solomon was doing. Uh, This is ridiculous. Uh, Let's read verses 22 to 34 in chapter 4. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, and one core was about six bushels worth. Ten fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl, for he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also, and straw for the horses, and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east, and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite and Heman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, and of birds, and of reptiles, and of fish, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Okay, so every day, every day Solomon has all this stuff coming his way. Um, It's brought in from every corner of his kingdom and it is absolutely excessive in quantity. Uh, Wait till we get a little further along in our reading. Solomon was accumulating obscene amounts of wealth. Everyone had more than enough to live on. And then this passage talks about his wisdom. It's described as being beyond measure. His mind held so much knowledge that it was compared to the sand on the seashore. Um, That's a lot of knowledge. His writings are mentioned here, so let me put that in context as well. It says he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and then he wrote 1,005 songs. um, Just two of his abundant talents. In the Bible, three books written by Solomon have been included for us. They're written at different times of his life and I like this distinction that I read um, while I was studying this. Here's what Solomon wrote. During the sunrise of his life, Solomon wrote what we know as the Song of Solomon. Um, Husbands and wives, if you have the courage, read that book together. It'll do your marriage a a world of good. Um, I'm not going to teach that book from here on the platform. Um, I would have too hard a time not giggling, and so you would learn nothing, so what's the point? In the noon of his life, Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. Um, make Proverbs a part of your regular reading, um, spend some time there. If we all read and applied even a portion of what he wrote in Proverbs, um, this would be the greatest church on the nation. Proverbs is like super-concentrated vitamins for your life. It's amazing stuff. Then, during the sunset of his life, the later days of his life, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, After all he had lived and experienced, this is what he had to say, and that's why we're studying it. Now, Solomon was a brilliant man. In every subject, his understanding surpassed that of, of any man, even entire nations. His understanding of of nature is cited here as an example. He knew all there was to know about the mighty cedar trees of Lebanon. But he also knew all there was to know about these tiny weeds like the hyssop that grew in the cracks of the city wall. He knew all there was to know about plants and animals and about so many more subjects. And when we get into Ecclesiastes itself, you'll be amazed what his writings there revealed about his vast, vast knowledge. As a king... There was a very important job that needed to be done by Solomon. There was not a temple for the worship of God, and he knew that there needed to be one. And so since the nation of Israel was experiencing a time of peace and safety and bounty, um, this became Solomon's priority. So to get this effort started, Solomon assembled a massive workforce and all the materials that he needed. Uh, An entire forest of cedar trees was provided by a guy named Hiram, Um, Then the workforce was assembled. Look at how this is described in chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers, guys that carry stuff, and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried, at, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. And so Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Okay, the temple was going to be built the right way. There was no question. Thousands of laborers, all the best materials. And you can read about that process in the next few chapters of 1 Kings. Uh, It describes the building of the temple in detail. Um, On our resource page on the website, we'll post some pictures of what experts think it really looked like. Uh, It was an amazing undertaking. Well, with this massive workforce, Solomon spent the next seven years building God's temple in Jerusalem. Um, Read about it in 1 Kings. Incredible stuff. But let's skip ahead now to when uh, the temple was finished. And before we do, let me give you one clear indicator that something was happening in Solomon that wasn't quite right. Along with building the temple of God in Jerusalem, Solomon set out to build his own house, the royal palace. And while Solomon invested seven years in building the temple for God, He invested 13 years in building his own palace. Solomon's values are starting to shift here. So the Lord appears to Solomon again. And this interaction is recorded in 1 Kings 9. Look at 1 Kings 9, the first nine verses. It says, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house, this temple that you have built, by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Then he says, And as for you, if you walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules... Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Um, Pretty hard to miss the warning here. Uh, Follow me and you'll prosper. Abandon me and I will bring ruin on you. You can sense something's happening here. There's a different tone to God's words this time. So what happened then to Solomon? Well, the accumulation of wealth continued. He built a fleet of ships and sent them to places where they could get more stuff. He brought back 420 talents of gold from one of his mines. A talent is about 75 pounds. It's one talent. Pounds, not ounces. Um, On the show Gold Rush this season, the Hoffman crew was hoping for 1,000 ounces of gold for this year. From this mine, Solomon harvested 504,000 ounces of gold. On top of that, listen to what he brought in each year in gifts of gold from his nation. It says in chapter 10 that he received 666 talents of gold each year. That's 49,950 pounds of gold. That's 799,200 ounces of gold. And on today's market, that's worth about $1,332,666,000. Per year in gifts of gold. And that's just the gold. This is where things are at with Solomon. Chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them brought his present. Articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year by year. To top it off, Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. To say that Solomon had it all is a massive understatement. But things continued to turn for Solomon and not in the right direction. He collected wives from around the world and they brought with them they're foreign religions. They're foreign gods. And Solomon began doing what God had specifically warned him not to do. He began to pay tribute to their gods as well. And Solomon turned from the Lord. Once again, Solomon heard from God. But this time, this is what God had to say. Chapter 11, verses 9 to 13. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I've chosen. Um, God raised up enemies against Solomon's kingdom, and the destruction of all that he had worked so hard to build was on. Forty years Solomon had reigned, and after those 40 years, Solomon died and was buried with his father David, and his mighty kingdom was stripped from the hands of Solomon's son. In the twilight years of his life, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. The man who had everything and knew everything left us some final words of advice, and God included those words in his message to us. Are You ready to hear what Solomon had to say? Um, It's not going to be very encouraging. But it's a message that we have to hear. And thank God he made it available to us. Next week we will dig into specifically what Solomon had to say in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to have the ushers come now, the worship team to return to the stage, and let's, uh, let's pray as we wrap this up. Father, it's uh, not difficult to see and hear what it was that you were trying to say to Solomon throughout his life. The fact that you visited him personally three times ought to get our attention. So Lord, as, as we get into this study of where Solomon was at at the end of his life, open our eyes to this. To realize that this story is here for a reason. And Father, help us to learn this truth that, that you stated over and over again in what we've heard today. David messed up in huge ways, but your love for him was steadfast, it did not end. And either, even after David was gone, in spite of his mistakes, You were able to speak very positive things to his son about him because you loved him. Because your love for him did not fail. God, this morning we thank you for that kind of love, the love that you have for us. That in spite of anything that we may have done or said or practiced, carried out, the, the huge mistakes we've made, the little mistakes we've made, your love for us is steadfast. You don't give up on us, and I praise you for that. Father, we come now to, to give. Um, Lord, we ask for your presence and your blessing in the giving. You have given us so much. Now, for the sake of the ministry of your church, we give back to you. Take what we have to offer, Lord. Multiply it, bless it. Guide us as we Continue to figure out ways to use what you've given us for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of reaching this world with a message of a love that is steadfast and never-ending and never-failing. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.